You're listening to the Game Strategy Biz Microcast. I'm James Batchelor, and I'm joined this morning by... You're joined by Chris Drink. I am joined by Chris Drink. How exciting. I'm, I'm very exciting for me, that has to be said. <laughs> um, we're back, another Microcast. A few more stories to be talking about. We've managed two weeks in a row. I'm, I'm, you know, so far, so good. Um, okay, first story we want to talk about this morning is uh, Embracer, the Embracer Group. Uh, this has been discussed a fair amount in the last week. We saw their financial results last uh, last Thursday, I believe it was. Um, among that, the kind of headlines are that they reduced their debts to $1.4 billion from $1.5 billion in the last quarter. They're trying to get it down to uh, $8 billion sec, uh, Swedish krona, or $757.1 million by the end of the fiscal year. So that's March 31st, 2024. Um, so they're trying, they're trying to halve their debt. And as we all know, they're halving this debt by a... A restructuring program that has involved a lot of layoffs and that is putting it mildly because they confirmed during their financial report that they have laid off between July and September so start of July and end of September this year they laid off 904 people we know there have been layoffs since um, so those layoffs included but were not limited to uh, the layoffs at Crystal Dynamics Gearbox Publishing, Beamdog, the closures of Campfire Cabal and Volition Games, obviously who did Saints Row, the, the developed the Saints Row series. Um, since the end of September, there have already been layoffs at Digic, Zen Studios and Cryptic Studios, so we know that it's more than 904 people who have been laid off since the restructuring began. They've not given any indication as to how many we can expect, but there are expected to be more job cuts and potentially some studio closures. They're looking at trying to sell some studios although they're not necessarily getting um, many interest in buying. Uh, yeah, Embrace, uh, Embracer's position is an interesting one. I think everyone from the outside in is looking, and, and it's fairly easy to point at what has happened here. They bought a lot of things, and they bought it too quickly when it was easy to buy stuff, and they haven't produced enough kind of you know strong sellers or hit games that can kind of sustain the the sheer size of the group. Uh, I mean, you know, it, I, we've written about this before, like the size of the Embracer group in terms of number of staff, number of employees, number of um, studios, number of games in the works, is on par with your Activisions, your Ubisofts, your EAs, and yet they're not competing on that level at all when it comes to the games they're producing. Um, Chris, what's your take on on kind of the you know, the ongoing Embracer situation? Um, there's a great word, the great phrase that um, Rob Fahey used in his article, which was um, corporate vandalism. And um, mm. and it, it it feels like that because what they've done here, I, I, I'm, I, I this is obviously different. Everyone has different views on this, different perceptions on it. And I've always felt like Embracer used to really it always surprise me because Lars, um, uh, you know, this is from the THQ Nordic folks, right? The Nordic Games Group, the people that bought up a load of cheap THQ products like you know Red Faction and Dark Siders in 2013 that that used to, that ran a load of Joe Wood products, um, small not even i wouldn't even call them b level games a lot of them um uh and uh but you know small little publishing outfit suddenly owning gearbox and tomb raider and um mm. and what heard how, how what do these people know how to do with tomb raider what do these people know what to do and uh, don't be wrong they've brought in that talent obviously who made these games but that talent is now being asked to do it on its own i always i always think back to the days that the microsoft bought rare and then turned to rare and said like right how do we make this console really popular and it's like well, Ren, you had to make hit console games but they have they were surrounded by a nintendo and um and so I, i've always been a bit 
wary of it. And now we're in a situation where wonderful game studios that were perfectly sustainable and successful in their own right when they were bought are now being closed and butchered um, because of, well, what's obviously in hindsight, a really stupid <laughs> series of decisions. Um, uh, obviously, we could nobody could have predicted, you know, the war in Ukraine and, and the huge levels of uh, uncertainty. But when you take a risk that big, you're going to have to, you're really betting hard and thing on the numbers just mm. in the graph just going up all the time and if for whatever reason the graph was to go down and um and, and which it's what has happened here then you've you've potentially damaged a lot and you know i don't know how this ends but if this ends in a direction that, that's, that ends how i fear it's going to end we're in a position where some of these wonderful brilliant triple a teams i mean some of them you know like volition i love volition i love their games but they haven't made a hit in years and you know, in any in any industry, you can't you know have three sort of relative failures on a bounce and expect to sort of you know things will go wrong. I feel sorry, you know, they, their games were good; it just didn't. They never really hit. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm a bit I'm I'm sad about it. You know, there's and some of it, some of the stuff they did was always a bit like they got this huge project where they're sort of buying up a load of old games um, to try and create. It's a wonderful thing, but it does feel like. Something, uh, somebody at the head of the company just likes old games, right? And it's like Free Radical Design. There's the, the, one yeah. of the studios that apparently is, is on the brink of being closed is Free Radical Design, which um, people keep calling that a storage studio. It's not a storage studio. It was. <laughs> it closed down. It got shifted around a bit. I think Dam Busters, uh, which is a, um, a different studio, is like the original Free Radical Design. But they, um, they got reformed with some of the original um, Free Radical people. So it's like a new studio. But the whole idea of reforming a AAA game studio to make a, get a, a new Time Splitters title is like is the biggest vanity project I've ever heard of. As much as I want that product game, don't mm. get me wrong. Um, and there's a lot of spending, a lot of uh, just the excess. And I think if you think about the excess that the games industry went through during that pandemic, the amount of spending that was done, it wasn't just game developers and games publishers, by the way. The games media did it. Every games industry, every games company that saw a huge spike in money spent it. And um, but Embracer really embody that excess, and um, and they are. You mm. know, if we're going to see a big fall, this is the one, unfortunately. And um, I'm hoping the biggest issue that Embracer's got is that um, some of these studios are actually sustainable, perfectly decent little teams in their own right. But it's finding people to buy them, and um, uh, so maybe some of them will spin off independently. I think some of them already have, um, but. Uh, uh, Right now, people aren't buying quite so much. Um, I know it's, it's a ridiculous thing to say in, in, on the brink of the Activision Blizzard deal finally going through, but it, it, then it, you know the, the interest rates are high. Investment investors are nervous. M and A activity is down. Um, nobody's floated in years. Like it's um, it's a it's a tough period for this. There is a signs that investment might be coming back. You know, we just saw the End Dreams deal today, and that's a sign that people are people are willing to buy. Um, Maybe not to the not not the numbers they were buying before, but they are willing to buy. And you know, there's hope that next year we'll see a bit more M and A activity, particularly in reaction maybe to some of the deals that have been going on. Um, and that might give him. But you know, Embrace want to sell this stuff before the end of the financial year, and I don't know if many people are buying this side of the financial year. So um, yeah, it, it's um, my take on it is uh, a fear because I think I think the games industry isn't going for a blip. <laughs> I think this is going to be two to three years of some real pain as we sort of get to grips with our financial situation as an industry. If we get, we get to grips with our cost base and how we operate and, um, uh, and the result will be 
Um, and I and yeah, I, so I, I'm. It, it's going to be a tough. It's going to be tough for them to sell some of those companies. Yeah, Embrace is kind of the the poster child for this period of of turbulence the industry is going through. Like and and as you say, like you know. It's very questionable decisions that have led Embracer specifically to this. Um, I mean, not just like the the amount of spending, but also kind of a little bit the lack of focus in spending. You know, it's it's not just been buying up game studios and, and B tier IP. It's also been buying you know bought Asmodee Digital, like a, a board game company, bought Dark Horse Comics. You know, the the Lord of the Rings. Lord, isn't it? It's doing a deal with oh yeah no bought the Lord of the Rings IP. Mm-hmm. Like it's just it's the group just. It's got the money to support, to, to seal these deals, but not necessarily the track record of the talent that we can see well, to make use of it. And, you know, the, to go from, in, in a relatively short space of time, to go from a, a group slash publisher that is focusing on kind of, as you say, like kind of smaller IP video games to suddenly being in AAA, but also owning Lord of the Rings and a board and one of the leading board game publishers and a comics publisher and like a video distribution company. Like they, they spoke to us a couple of years ago. Um, I believe I had an interview with Lars uh, Winger Force, the CEO, like talking about how the ambition is to become more than a games company is to become an entertainment company. And yet again, like to compare to, you know, AAA firms on the same sort of scale as Embracer Group, you've had Ubisoft, EA, Activision, all of those trying to get to a similar point where they are entertainment companies um, and, you know, who've been in the industry for decades with much, much more proven brands and much more popular um, brands. And they have struggled with this. So I, 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 we've got an interview going up with um, uh, Phil Rogers from Embracer Group. It's going up later this week. I spoke to him um, lately. I think I spoke to him Thursday, actually, just after the results came out. And he spoke a lot about ambition and how not just in terms of Embracer, but in terms of the entire industry. Like the reason we saw that kind of massive growth is, yeah, they had the money available um, during you know, the, the, the spike and the relatively cheap availability of, of money. And the ambition of the industry was to grow and to become bigger and so forth. And then certainly Embracer tried to be ambitious. I think we're seeing proof that some companies and particularly Embracer were too ambitious. That ambition was far beyond their actual yeah. means. Yeah. That's a kind of way of putting it. <laughs> the, um, it was, it was, there was, there was, there was, there was, there was like legitimate analysis. You know, you saw the move betwo- towards streaming and subscriptions. They're talking about the future of the industry was mm. less about platforms and more around IP and content and stuff. And you think that you, when you started looking, thinking about it from that perspective, you understood why Microsoft was buying up so many of these and you can understand why Amazon was investing so much in this. And you sort of embrace it. Embrace was positioning itself as being, you know, Amazon's best friend, really. You know, if you want to, if you want to launch a, a big games business with lots of strong IP, you want to do a deal with Embrace. It's worth noting Embrace is a holding company as well. It's not, it's not the same as like a, a, a yeah. Microsoft or an EA or anything like that. You know, they, these studios, these things they were buying, they didn't need leadership and say around them that could that could help drive them. It's just, it, it's just, yeah, it is that, um, it is that sort of just sort of excess really um and i don't know you it's it's really it's really troubling and um and i'm um and i'm and i'm you know i'm looking at some some of these companies in here you know could we re you know they own tomb raider (laughs) um they own they own they own lord of the rings they own uh, they own uh the people behind borderlands it's it's it is a um it is a 
But but the thing is, those will probably be the ones that will, you know, either be okay or find their feet or or be the ones that they end up focusing on um, when it when 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 they've finished cutting things back. I don't imagine Tomb Raider's under threat, but you know there are there are other companies. Um, uh, you know, I remember going to doing the it, Italian. I went to a, a did Italy Games Week back in July, and two of the companies I spoke to were embracer companies making interesting strategy games uh, you know just small style games and you have to worry you had to worry for those um because mm. you know where do they fit if you're sitting there and you're cutting costs and you're focusing in on the biggest opportunities which is what you do in these situations these aren't them and that's and that's the you know we we went through this at repop right you know we we went through a thing where we you know repop closed a load of things that either weren't growing or weren't working perfectly and they may have worked one day they may have been so they were investing in them with the idea that one day there would be something significant, but the money had dried up. Now, this in Reed Pop's defense, you know, that was because of the pandemic killed all the events business. So the money disappeared um, in this situation. But it's it's, you know, for where there's things that close. You think, oh, they shouldn't really have closed. They would have been something one day or they were going places or there was there were a future. It's a future. It was a future think investing in the futures. But when things are tough now, it's a future stuff that gets cut. And I give another example, HMV as a, a retailer in the UK, when they were um, when they were trying to work out what their future was in a, in, a, in a digital age, they invested in cinema, they invested in live music, they owned a bunch of venues, um, and they invested in Gamerbase, which is a place where you go and experience video games. They were trying to create a new world where HMB was a place that you played games, you listened to music, and you, and you watched films. It wasn't just buying them. And then, you know, then the market became, you know, collapsed and digital accelerated far faster than they expected. And what did they do? They sold Gamer Base, <laughs> you know, the closed Gamer Base. They sold off um, Curzon Cinemas. They sold off the um, live music thing. They sold off the growth areas because they were still they weren't yet delivering the money to focus in on the things that would immediately turn a profit. And that is and that's what and that's the that's really that's, and that's why that's why I'm worried about you know the smaller more mm. more um, uh, speculative investments that Embracer have made. I think they're the ones that are most they're the ones to be worried about most. I'm intrigued to see how long this goes on. Obviously, they're 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 aiming to halve their debt um, by the end of the financial year, but they will still have a significant chunk of debt. So they're like, you know, this is not going to end March 31st, 2024. This is still going to be an ongoing process. Um, I'm intrigued to see what Embracer looks like afterwards as a group. You know, what what's retained, what the strategy is, um, what becomes of the pieces it sells off, what becomes of the pieces it closes down. Um, I, I almost wonder, like, will we see almost history repeating a bit? You know, the Embracer Group grew out of a company buying a ton of THQ IP in uh, an auction after that company went bankrupt. Like, will we see Embracer collapse completely and then just see a bidding war over everything that Embracer owns? I, I don't know. It's, um, it's going to be one to watch. And, uh, and and you know, as we said, like you know, it, embraces is the poster child for this. Like it's not the only company going through this. It's perhaps the most prominent because of the the decisions it's made and so forth. But like you know, the number of companies now that are you know seeing mass layoffs or you restructuring like this is as you said like we're in for a, a rough period in this yeah. industry. Which well, is you think you think if you've got if you've got quite... that much debt, that debt was you know one price before all the inflation. <laughs> You know, and it's it's anyone that's got mm. debt, it's worth it's it's so much worse now than it was, you know, eighteen months ago. The other story we wanted to talk about this week was uh, comments by Strauss Zelnick, uh, 
the Take-Two CEO. This was comments that were pulled from the earnings call after their results a couple of weeks back. He was being asked about how his views on subscription pricing in the broader entertainment market, because obviously you're seeing a lot of subscriptions raising their price, things like Netflix, Disney Plus are raising their price, asking how that impacts games and his thoughts on subscription. Zelnick's quite uh, openly said that he doesn't believe subscription is going to take over the industry as a dominant model in the way that it has music and video on demand, but he does believe it works nicely for catalogue. They, you know, take two and Rockstar support, you know, all yeah. the subscription things with catalogue. Um, when he was uh, um, speaking, he said, and this kind of word for word, in terms of pricing for any entertainment property, basically the algorithm is the value of the expected entertainment usage, which is to say that the per hour value times the number of expected hours plus the terminal value that's perceived by the customer in ownership if the title is owned or subscribed to. And you'll see that that bears out in every kind of entertainment video, uh, vehicle. By that standard, our frontline prices are still very, very low because we offer many hours of engagement. The value engagement is very high, so I think as the industry as a whole offers a terrific price-to-value opportunity for customers. That doesn't necessarily mean that the industry has pricing power or wants to have pricing power. However, there is a great deal of value offered, and look, it's our strategy here to deliver much more value than what we charge customers. It's always been our strategy here. We want to make sure that the experience is first class and the nature of the experience is not just the quality of what we offer, it's also what you pay for it. Everyone knows that anecdotally. Now, the per hour value phrase he used towards the start of that quote got picked up by a few outlets um, and <laughs> stories were going around that he was suggesting that video games should be charged hourly. Um, basically, payers, players pay as they play. That's not what he was suggesting. I think it would be commercial suicide for anyone to actually suggest that, given how monetization is already scrutinized. We even 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 the even the sites that got it right, they still made a bit of a thing out of the fact he was yeah. saying um, uh, uh, the game should be you know priced by the uh, in turn priced by the hour. So you know seventy per game should be a game that's hundred hours long. The thing is, he wasn't saying that either. He's not saying anything that you, if, you, if you ever read GI execs say all the time which is that video games offer on in generally a much huge i think i did a bit of analysis like one of the sort of big hit games we've had this year super mario wonder apparently it's 18 hours long if you do everything in that game right that still works out as roughly three dollars fifty an hour right so which is better than i love, I love that calculation <laughs> It's actually less than that. I think it's three dollars forty or something. And it's it's and it's like and and that's what he's getting at, right? He's saying that in terms of like the amount, you think about how much how much fun, how much time you're spending in these worlds, and you think about the price. Yes, seventy dollars seems a lot more money than a uh, a ten dollar CD or whatever a piece of music. But you know the experience you're getting is so much deeper and vaster. And that's broadly been proven to be true down the years. And I did an op-ed though where I said like, but that's not always true now. Like I can subscribe to Disney Plus for eight dollars i'm using dollars simply because of our international audience i'm obviously spend it in pounds but then um and i can get access to thousands of hours of tv that will entertain me for like ever um a month for that amount of money and, and you've also got things like um uh free to play games and stuff whereas I was, so whereas this was definitely the truth back when the last financial crisis hit us um i'm not in, i'm not saying i'm not convinced i'm not sure if it's still the case in terms of that, I think there are better value entertainment out there now than video games. But I still agree, you know, you know, video games are uh, good entertainment. They last a long time. Um, sometimes it's 30 hours, sometimes it's 200 hours. Um, I remember my view on it. I, and I generally believe that view. I remember when I bought Super Mario 3D All-Stars and there was all these people on the Nintendo forums saying how it's a ripoff it was. I didn't see it as a ripoff at all. Guaranteed, because I love those games. Guaranteed eight hours or 80 hours of fun 
right? It cost me 50 quid. And as far as I'm concerned, that was that was that was a whole Christmas worth of gaming um, for 50 quid. Bargain, right? In my head, it was bargain. Everyone else was going, oh, I haven't put enough effort into it. It's just a bunch of old ports. But I do, I do, I do believe, and it's proven, you can see it in the data, that consumers just value um, um, time is a factor. Time is a factor. But I don't think that's nothing new. There's nothing he said that was new or controversial or different. It just... Um, Somebody misinterpreted it and they read the quote and then it sort of spread and spiraled a little bit. But it was, you know, Andrew Wilson said something similar quite recently about the value of games. And that didn't quite go as far. But anyway, yeah, and it wasn't a controversial quote. People thought yeah. it was fun story. <laughs> and, it, and fun story and a, and a good excuse to, like, as you say, like have that kind of value conversation again against the value for money that video games are. Like, you know, and it's you you can't quantify you can't quantify the value for video games because you you don't know how people play them like you know uh, okay yeah like you you paid you 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 played super mario 3d all stars and you've got tons and tons and tons of hours out of that um and therefore it's the worst the month worth the money to you like someone else might buy uh buy that play through each of the games once or maybe half of the games and then think no that's it this wasn't worth the money like you it's it's difficult yeah. like, you know, yeah, it, it, and values perception, yeah. right? You know, that's why people think Apple products are worth more than PC products. It's why people are happy to buy a really fancy jumper for £200 from one uh, outlet, but buy a very similar one for 30 quid from somewhere else. Like, okay, one might be more premium made, but ultimately they're probably not too different in production price. It, there's brand power. There's Like Nintendo games never devalue. <laughs> they never depreciate in value because it's how they present their value. But yeah, um, um, but yeah. It's it's all very complicated um, and video game. You know, people aren't happy to spend five dollars on a Mario Run game, but they're perfectly happy to spend fifty pounds on a Mario three D platform on a Switch. It, it's that's always that's always the fascinating contrast is between the value of a mobile game versus value of a of a console game. Even if the sa- even if it's the same damn game. I mean, we had this conversation around um, the iPhone Pro, uh, iPhone fifteen Pro announcement that Resident Evil Four uh, is coming, or sorry, Resident Evil Village is coming to iPhone fifteen Pro. And running natively and it'll be the exact same game but there is no way that capcom can charge full price that you would for a console game on mobile because no one will buy it there's just it it, it won't because the, the well, mo- some people will but the value perceptions that's the thing yeah the value perception of the overall mobile audience is different again stadia the value perception like you know paying full price for a game that you don't tangibly have it's just kind of attached to your account and it's in the yeah, cloud that's part of it and Stelnik says that in his mm. quote doesn't he? he says you know as well as the you know the actual value of the thing you have you have a thing right so you know yeah that's that's the thing yeah it's a complicated thing and you know um, and it's interesting to see the game, you know, this conversation come up during these economic times, just as we've ris- raised all the prices of everything. Yes. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how it pans out. And then, of course, you know, if consumers don't think it's good value, the industry has to react. But I suspect they will. Last example I'll give is like it's things like the um, Bluey, the video game, which came out on Friday. That is 40. It's a 40 dollar game. So by today's standards, that's almost like a budget-priced game compared to like the seventy-dollar AAA. I guarantee my kids will get more time out of that than I will get out of any seventy-dollar game. It's, it's, yeah. It, well, yeah. So do so do with your last. You need a PlayStation Portal. <laughs> play a bit more time. <laughs> you fit it, fit it around. Speaking of which, I believe you've got a PlayStation Portal that arrived. You, I, I, I say, I, I say, yes. I believe you've yes. got one. Like I don't know this, but I remember you waved it at me during a video meeting last week. So how is it? Have you unboxed it yet? 
Yeah, no, yeah. Well, it's 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 fine. I I will say this. I've always been a very big believer in that convenience. I never used to be a big believer, actually. When the Switch came out, I argued that Nintendo were targeting an audience between mobile and console gamers. And I didn't know if they existed, right? Console gamers want high-end experience. Mobile gamers want easy experience. It's quite cheap. Um, and Nintendo would sort of have a high-priced product, higher-priced product, um, targeting a group of people that want high-end games and they thought, is this going to work? But they found that audience. Audience existed. Those audiences are people like me who don't have as much time to play games and are quite happy, you know, taking a slight graphical hit, um, a slight frame rate hit in favour of convenience. And I believe that audience is huge. Um, I don't think PlayStation Portal is convenient. Um, I have already had to reorganise my house a little bit to where the PlayStation <laughs> is in order to get the best signal for it. It's more convenient than me finding time with the TV, I have to say. Um, and it, it looks lovely and it sounds like, and it's got the DualSense attached to it and it's very nice. But, and if you can, and if it works with your internet and your console connection, then great. But um, um, but I will say that uh, it, it's, it's, um, it's not quite, it's not, it's not Steam Deck and it's no. not Switch. Um, and the same with the Xbox actually with their streaming solution. It, it is, it makes things a little more convenient, but not convenient enough in my mind. But well, you know, I'll, I'll use it. I'll play Spider-Man on it. I'll play Resident Evil 4 on it and I'll use it all Christmas. I'm very much that target audience, but I don't think it's, it needs to be a little bit more convenient if it wants to be um, bigger. I'm intrigued to see what they do with it. Like it's, uh, it's reportedly sold out within two days of launch. Although that, that doesn't necessarily, we don't know what that means because we don't know the shipment allocation. We don't know how many units are out. People love PlayStation but products. It's really people good. People it's love really good. It looks very nice. It's, very it's a really nice one. I'm just, I'm intrigued. It's like, it must be an interesting one to communicate for like the marketing team and so forth. Because like, an anecdotally, I have seen people like on social media and now I'm on like a, a game centric dad group on Facebook. And I've seen people, uh, hang on, the PlayStation portal requires me to be on the same Wi-Fi network. I think there is still the perception of like, people who just look at the box and don't actually read up on the device that it is a steam deck that it is a switch that is you know the playstation equivalent and it's not and that's just a really interesting hurdle for them I, to, to tackle i don't think people who i don't think i think if anyone that's pre-ordered the product and made it sold out they oh yeah they did they did yeah maybe when it's further down further down the line there might be that issue but i doubt it i think i think it's all pretty explanatory about how it works I'm going to wrap us up there because I have work to do and you have a PlayStation Portable to be playing. So um, thank you so much for joining me this morning, Chris. Really, uh, really appreciate these little weekly cash-ups of ours. No, thank you. And thank you, dear listener, for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the GI podcast, microcast, and the Playable Distributors podcast on the podcasting platform of your choice. And as always, you can get more news, insight, and analysis into the business behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. 